We have said many times we will not initiate any war, but if anyone wants to bully, Iran will respond firmly. The Pentagon launched airstrikes in Syria and Iraq against Iran-backed militants and carried out new attacks on Houthi forces in Yemen over the weekend. We'll speak with Middle East scholar Nargis Bajogli about how the war in Gaza revived the axis of resistance. And we'll look at the impact of Biden's Gaza policy on his re-election bid. We'll speak with Matt Das, former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders, now at the Center for International Policy. Then we'll speak with Dr. Tariq Haddad, who lost 80 family members in Israel's bombardment of Gaza and refused to meet with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in a roundtable of Palestinian Americans. I realized I couldn't in good conscience meet with him, knowing that there has been no constructive effort whatsoever to actually change the situation on the ground, to make that, for, that situation better, to stop the killing of my family members. And, uh, and that's ultimately why I decided not to show up. And unless Israel changes course, it could be legally culpable for mass starvation. People are almost dying and they are suffering really badly. It is getting to complete chaos and famine, especially in the north, in Rafah and Khan Yunis. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Amy Goodman will return tomorrow. The United States bombed 85 targets in Syria and Iraq on Friday in retaliation for a recent drone strike by Iran-backed militants on a base in Jordan that killed three U.S. troops. Iran's foreign ministry spokesperson denounced the U.S. airstrikes as, quote, another adventurous and strategic mistake by the United States that will result only in increased tension and instability. At least 40 people reportedly died in Friday's attacks. On Sunday, a drone struck a base housing U.S. troops in eastern Syria. Six Kurdish fighters allied with the U.S. died in the attack. President Biden's National Security Council coordinator, Admiral John Kirby, appeared on Fox News Sunday. I'm certainly not going to talk about potential future military operations. What I would say, and this is a really important point, is what you saw on Friday night was just the first round. There will be additional response actions taken by the administration uh, against the IRGC and these groups that they're backing. The U.S. also bombed Yemen again on Saturday and Sunday, targeting sites controlled by Houthi forces who vowed to keep targeting ships linked to Israel and the United States until Israel halts its assault on Gaza. This comes as U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken returns to the Middle East for meetings in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Qatar and Israel. Israel is continuing to bomb the southern Gaza city of Rafah, where hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians had taken shelter seeking safety. On Saturday, an Israeli strike on a home in Rafah killed at least 14 people, including women and children. At least 30 Palestinians also died in Deir al-Bala, where Israel bombed homes and a mosque. Health officials in Gaza say at least 234 Palestinians have died since Friday, bringing the overall death toll since October 7th to over 27,300. Meanwhile, a Palestinian doctor who was jailed by Israel for 45 days has described being tortured in Israeli custody. Dr. Saeed Abdul Rahman Marouf was jailed after Israeli forces raided Al Ahli Arab Hospital in Gaza City. 
The torture was very severe in Israeli prisons. I am a doctor. My weight was 87 kilograms. I lost in 45 days more than 25 kilograms of my weight. I lost my balance. I lost focus. I lost all feeling. We were shackled for 45 days, handcuffed for 45 days. However you describe the suffering and insults in prison, you can never know the reality unless you lived through it. In other news from Gaza, Belgium summoned the Israeli ambassador after Israel bombed Belgium's development agency in northern Gaza. The bombing reportedly occurred on Wednesday after Belgium announced it would not pause funding for UNRWA, the UN agency for Palestinian refugees. Protests are continuing across the U.S. against Israel's assault on Gaza. In Louisville, Kentucky, 15 people were arrested Friday after they blocked the entrance to offices of military contractors, Raytheon and BAE Systems. Meanwhile, 19 students at Brown University have entered their fourth day on hunger strike to urge Brown to divest from weapons manufacturers who are arming Israel. A bipartisan group of senators have unveiled a $118 billion package that includes harsh new immigration measures with new military aid for Ukraine, Israel and allies in the Pacific. President Biden has backed the package, describing it as the toughest set of border reforms in decades. The ACLU has warned the bipartisan deal would eviscerate long-standing asylum protections and force the government to summarily expel people from the border without due process. House Speaker Mike Johnson has already said the bipartisan Senate package is, quote, dead on arrival if it makes it to the House. Meanwhile, Independent Senator Bernie Sanders has announced plans to introduce an amendment to remove $10.1 billion in military aid for Israel. In a statement, Sanders denounced what he called, quote, Netanyahu's illegal, immoral war against the Palestinian people. In other immigration news, a dozen Republican governors joined with Texas Governor Greg Abbott at the U.S.-Mexico border to show support for Texas's unprecedented standoff with the federal government. Last month, the state of Texas seized a portion of the U.S.-Mexico border and has refused to give Border Patrol agents access to the area. The standoff in Texas comes with the presidential election nine months away. On Saturday, President Biden easily won the Democratic primary in South Carolina, the first primary recognized by the DNC. Biden won more than 95 percent of the vote. Marianne Williamson placed second with about 2 percent. In Chile, at least 112 people have been killed as the country's deadliest ever wildfires rage throughout the central coastal hills. Hundreds of others are missing in the fires caused by a summer heat wave and drought. Chile is observing two days of national warning as President Gabriel Boric declared a state of emergency. The fires now threaten to engulf the cities of Viña del Mar and Valparaiso, which have a combined population of over one million. This is a resident of Viña del Mar who lost her home this weekend. From one moment to the next, the fire reached the botanical park. In 10 minutes, the fire was already on us. There was smoke, the sky turned black, everything was dark. The wind felt like a hurricane. It was like being in hell. Wildfires are becoming more frequent and more lethal as the climate crisis worsens. In Southern California, millions of people are facing life-threatening flooding, winds and landslides as an atmospheric river started lashing the region Sunday. 
parts of the Los Angeles area could receive around half a year's worth of rain by Tuesday. A state of emergency has been put in place for at least eight counties, with some areas also issuing evacuation orders. Nearly a million customers have experienced power outages. In the Netherlands, police arrested around 1,000 Extinction Rebellion climate activists as they blocked the A12 highway in The Hague. Activists are demanding the Dutch government speed up their pledge to end some $50 billion in annual fossil fuel subsidies. We still demand an end to fossil fuel subsidies, which has not yet happened. The plan to phase them out was supposed to be presented to the second chamber at the end of last year, but we are still waiting for that as well. So yes, we will return, because the climate crisis is escalating. It's only getting worse. Fossil fuel subsidies amount to approximately 46.5 billion euros per year. We will return to the A12 main road and sit there until fossil fuel subsidies are lifted. In El Salvador, President Nayib Bukele has declared victory in Sunday's election, though the official results haven't been announced. Early ballot counts showed Bukele with over 80 percent of the votes. Meanwhile, his political party, New Ideas, is expected to win almost all of the seats in El Salvador's Legislative Assembly, where it already held a supermajority. Bukele addressed his supporters in the capital, San Salvador, yesterday. We have started to defeat our biggest evil. We are on the cusp of winning the war against the gangs. Literally, it's not an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. Literally, we went from being the most dangerous country in the world to being the most secure in all of the Western Hemisphere. Human rights advocates warned of holding Sunday's election in El Salvador under a brutal state of emergency enacted by Bukele's government to crack down on gangs, which has led to heavy militarization and the mass arrest of tens of thousands of people since March 2022. Rights groups have documented arbitrary arrests, forced disappearances, torture and violations of due process. They also estimate more than 200 people have died in jail and police custody. Last year, El Salvador's Supreme Electoral Tribunal allowed Bukele to run for a second term, even though the Salvadoran constitution prohibits it. Many fear Bukele's grip on power will further erode democracy in El Salvador and push the Central American country to authoritarianism. In eastern Ukraine, Moscow-installed officials say at least 28 people were killed in the town of Lizichansk in the Russian-occupied region of Luhansk. The attack hit a bakery Saturday. At least one of the victims was a child. Ukraine has not yet commented on the attack, which Russian officials say was conducted with the U.S.-supplied High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, or HIMARS. In Senegal, security forces used tear gas to disperse protesters in the capital, Dakar, after President Macky Sall moved to postpone this month's elections. Demonstrations took place as the National Assembly gathered to debate the issue. We are only defending ourselves. He meddles with the Constitution. He meddles with the newspapers. He meddles with the population. He does everything he can to put us in a difficult position. I say it and I repeat it once again. We are not fighting for a simple cause. We are fighting for freedom. Among the arrested were former Prime Minister Aminata Turi and current presidential candidate Anta Babakar. Some have denounced Saul's move as an institutional coup. The Committee to Protect Journalists called on Senegalese authorities to restore mobile internet after it was cut earlier today amid growing political turmoil. 
History has been made in Northern Ireland as Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill has been sworn in to the top post of Northern Ireland's parliament, marking the first time the position has been held by a politician who supports the reunification of Ireland. This comes days after the pro-British Democratic Unionist Party agreed to end its nearly two-year-long boycott of the power-sharing government. Michelle O'Neill spoke Sunday. Today opens the door to a future a shared future. I am honoured to stand here as First Minister. We mark a moment of equality and a moment of progress, a new opportunity to work and to grow together. Confident in that wherever we come from, whatever our aspirations are, we can and we must build our future together. In northwest Pakistan, at least 10 police officers were killed earlier today when over two dozen militants attacked a police station in the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa region. The group, Tehrike Taliban Pakistan, claimed responsibility for the attack. This comes just days before Thursday's election in Pakistan. Meanwhile, Pakistan's imprisoned former Prime Minister Imran Khan and his wife were sentenced Saturday to seven more years in prison after a court ruled their marriage was unlawful. Khan has now been sentenced in three separate cases over the past two weeks. His supporters say the Pakistani judiciary is unfairly targeting Khan, who was ousted from power in 2022. And the Grammys were held Sunday night. Several artists used the event to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Members of the band Boy Genius, which won the Grammy for Best Alternative Music Album, took to the red carpet wearing pins with the logo for Artists Call for Ceasefire Now. The musician Annie Lennox called for a ceasefire from the stage just after performing a version of Nothing Compares to You, a song popularized by the late Sinead O'Connor. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. The United States bombed 85 targets in Syria and Iraq on Friday in retaliation for a recent drone strike by Iranian-backed militants on a base in Jordan that killed three U.S. troops. The Pentagon said it used long-range bombers flown directly from the U.S. in its largest action against Iran-backed groups since the Iraq War. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said Sunday on Fox News that the strikes were just the, quote, first round and vowed more would follow. I'm certainly not going to talk about potential future military operations. What I would say, and this is a really important point, is what you saw on Friday night was just the first round. There will be additional response actions taken by the administration uh, against the IRGC and these groups that they're backing. Meanwhile, on Saturday, Iran's interior minister denounced the U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. We naturally condemn any move against the resistance front, and we reject and condemn these attacks that will naturally lead to the flames of the resistance, and they must act wisely, which is very unlikely, and we do not see it in the Americans. If they act wisely, they should stop supporting the Zionist regime. This comes as the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reports six fighters from the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces were killed in an overnight attack Sunday on an U.S. base in eastern Syria. Today, Iran's security chief, Ali Ahmadian, has arrived in Bangladesh, in Baghdad, for talks to address the escalation in fighting. 
Meanwhile, the U.S. bombed Yemen again on Saturday and Sunday, targeting sites controlled by Houthi forces, who vowed to keep targeting ships linked to Israel and the United States until Israel halts its assault on Gaza. For more, we're joined by Nargis Bajogli, professor of Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins University. She co-authored the new book titled How Sanctions Work, Iran and the Impact of Economic Warfare, and is also the author of Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. Her recent co-authored piece in Foreign Affairs is headlined How the War in Gaza Revived the Axis of Resistance. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Nargis. If you could begin by responding to the latest news over the weekend, the U.S. launching airstrikes in Syria, Iraq and Yemen, and the Biden administration vowing more attacks are to come. And in particular, on Friday, the U.S. striking dozens of targets for the first time hitting facilities linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guards. Nargis. Sure. So, um, with the killing of the three U.S. servicemen um, in Jordan and Tower 22, that is one of uh, the U.S.'s stated red lines in the region. And that's been something that throughout the past three and a half months, as well as the longer sort of shadow war between Iran, Hezbollah, the U.S. and Israel in the region, that's been a red line that has been observed um, quite uh, firmly by by the forces that are fighting against uh, the United States and Israel. Now, with the three servicemen who were killed, it was obvious that the U.S. had to respond. Um, the fact that they responded in the ways that they did, but that Iran very quickly announced that no Iranians had been killed signals, they are signaling back to the U.S. that they understood that the retaliation had to happen, but that they are not escalating at this moment because their own um, fighters had not been killed. And now, I guess, could you explain what were the locations? Uh, the U.S. hit 85 targets at seven facilities in Iraq and Syria. What were the locations that were hit? Uh, as you said, Iran has said uh, there were no Iranian casualties, but of course, uh, there were Iraqis and Syrians who died. Uh, talk about the significance of the fact that in the Iranian media, it was made clear that there were no Iranian casualties and also explain uh, the targets that were hit by the U.S. Sure. So the targets that were hit were um, logistical centers, command centers, spaces that um, weaponry are stored. Um, and these are uh, sites that are linked to militias that um, are a part of what is called uh, the axis of resistance from uh, on behalf of Iran and its allied forces in the region. So these are um, spaces that the U.S. identified and at least stated that they um, these these locations are uh, backed by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and they are um, belonging to militias that are fighting against the U.S. and Israel in the region. Um, and the the significance of the fact that Iranian media claimed very quickly that Iranian no Iranians had been killed in in the attacks um, is because Iran had said um, that. Their red lines, they have two ma major red lines in the region for escalating this into a broader war. One is any kind of strike on Iran's territorial, uh, within Iran's territory or in its bases. And the second is the killing of, of Iranian personnel and fighters. And so this was a uh, very quickly after the attacks, they uh, announced within Iranian media that people had been killed, especially Iraqis and Syrians that were tied to these various militias and groups, but that no Iranians had been killed. So that was a very clear signal to say, we understand your response, but we will not escalate at this moment. 
And I mean, to to talk more about that phrase, the the axis of resistance, you've said uh, that Iran backed groups or Iran proxies has been in the headlines. Those phrases have been in the headlines uh, for decades. Is that, in your view, an accurate rendering, especially in light of the fact that you've made the argument that in this case, uh, uh, following uh, Israel's assault and ongoing assault on Gaza, it's Hezbollah that has really taken the lead because it recognizes that the core issue now is Palestine. So the axis or what's called the axis of resistance, um, sort of the seeds of it began after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. And the reason for that was that the U.S. at the time under the George II administration was very clear and very loud that the next country after Iraq would be Iran. So what Iran's Revolutionary Guards uh, Boots Forces, which are their extraterritorial forces, which at the time were under the command of Qasem Soleimani, their strategy became to create uh, militias within Iraq that would, in in essence, bog down the U.S. in Iraq and not allow it to turn its focus then on the Iranians. Um, eventually, throughout the 20 odd years of the global war on terror in the region, as the as the battlegrounds spread throughout the region, um, Iran also began to form um, and uh, give training to and funding to and weaponry to different militias throughout the region. At first, mostly sort of Shia militias, but uh, that began to expand uh, into non-sectarian forces. Um, the the uh, Iran's Revolutionary Guard and Hezbollah, Lebanese Hezbollah have been very instrumental in creating what is now what they now term the axis of resistance, which includes not only Iran and Hezbollah, Syria itself, uh, and militias across Iraq, um, as well as the Houthis in Yemen. And then, of course, Hamas in um, in the Gaza Strip and civilian resistance groups within the West Bank. These are all sort of under the umbrella of what is called the axis of resistance. Now, I think what's really important to note is that these are not proxy groups of Iran. Um, from the get-go, uh, Iran, the Revolutionary Guard has set up these groups to be decentralized. And then after the assassination or the killing of Bassem Soleimani by the Americans under the Trump administration in 2020, uh, the, his successor uh, has decentralized these, um, these forces even more. So what that means is that all of these forces are aligned with Iran and Hezbollah's um, mission to drive the United States out of the Middle East and to fight against um, what they deem to be Israeli colonialism, not only just over historic Palestine, but more broadly across the region. So that is first and foremost. But all of these groups are also involved in this access for their own local interests um, because they see the United States and Israel involved within their borders and within the fights that they are involved in locally. So the access in essence, yes, it um, it follows upon Iran's strategic interest in the region, but it is a decentralized access. They make their own decisions. They coordinate at the top, but it's not as easy as Iran says, do this. And then the, the, the members of the axis of resistance follow. 
And, and Nagas, could you uh, uh, talk about um, the extent to which you've you've pointed out that neither Iran nor the U.S., as officials from both countries have said, are not interested in escalating, much less in uh, coming into direct conflict, that is, the, the U.S. and Iran. But many have been concerned that, you know, at this point, one false move could set the entire region alight. And uh, especially so given that, uh, as many have said, yourself included, that Israeli Prime Minister uh, is, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is actually uh, creating the conditions for the U.S. and Iran uh, to have a direct confrontation. If, if you could talk a little bit about that and what you think the impact of this might be. Yes. Yeah, so, um at least from the perspective of whether it's within Iran or Hezbollah, the reading um, from their perspective of what is going on in the region is that as um, the Israelis have had a difficult time getting to their strategic objectives within Gaza, um, there is a desire on the behalf of Bibi Netanyahu to um, expand this war into one that would drive and drag the United States more fully into it, especially in direct confrontation with Iran. Because from the point of view of Israel and Israeli leaders, um, sort of, and this is what Netanyahu has stated, is that Iran is the head of what they call the octopus, right? And and so their desire is to say that in order to deal with what is going on in the region and this multi-pronged attack that is happening on Israel from across various borders, um, Iran needs to be dealt with uh, directly. Now, the United States does not want to get involved in a direct confrontation with Iran because it's not just a direct confrontation with Iran as the access of resistance kind of makes clear what Iran's strategy has been since the start of the global war on terror um, by the United States in the region has been to create a network of um, of spaces in which uh, if the U.S. were to get involved, uh, it would be a not just a war with Iran, it would be a war across the region. This is what makes this moment extremely dangerous is because, as you said, there could be miscalculation on either end. Um, and it could actually develop develop into something much lar larger. So although the United States is saying that they don't want to get involved in another large Middle East war and they instead want to focus on China and and sort of on a different part of the world, um, Iran has also made the same claim that it does not seek to get into a larger war. Now, what's important here is to note that both Iran and Hezbollah, although they are striking back against Israel, and different kinds of, of U.S. forces are sort of bases across the region. Um, the uh, what what they are trying to do is to put enough pressure um, on the U.S. and to create enough global sort of outrage about what is going on in Gaza uh, in order to put public pressure on the United States to retreat from the region because it knows that you know Iran and, and Hezbollah and the other forces know that they cannot it will be extremely difficult and they cannot take on the US militarily but what they are hoping to do is to create enough public pressure um, because of what is happening in Gaza to force the US to reconsider its strategies over these past few decades in the Middle East 
and finally, Nargis, you talked about this, uh, uh, the increasing support for this axis of resistance in the region. If you could speak, as you did in your foreign affairs piece, of the role of the war in another domain, that is to say, in media and in particular social media that is ongoing now, that is kind of changing uh, the nature of the conversation in the Middle East about this war. Right. So um, both uh, Nasrallah, who is the commander of Hezbollah in Lebanon, and Khamenei, who's the supreme leader of Iran, have been very clear in saying that their main objective, uh, that they will not get into this larger sort of what they call trap that Netanyahu is, is laying for them to engage more directly with the United States. And instead, they want to keep Palestine at the forefront. Now, why are they saying that? Not only because of what is happening in, in Gaza and um, and their sort of um, allyship with the Palestinians. But more than that also is the fact that Palestine as an issue has become a global issue for the first time in, in, in many decades. Um, and because of social media, it has broken through um, much of the narrative of how conflict in the Middle East more broadly, but especially Israel-Palestine, has been sort of talked about and understood on a global stage. It's now no longer about fighting Islamic terrorism, but the, there's a more global understanding that this is an issue that is related to occupation, apartheid, and settler colonialism. For uh, Why is this important for the axis of resistance is because for decades, they have been involved in fighting the United States and Israel in the region, but narratively, they've just been sort of deemed as terrorists or bad actors or maligned actors that are fighting against the United States. For the first time, pretty much in their existence so over the four, past four, four decades, for the first time, the causes by which I, at least they claim to be fighting for, which is driving the United States out of the region and um, and finishing off Israeli colonialism, for the first time that is being understood globally, not in the language of um, Shiaism or sort of religious and Islamic ideology, but in the language of human rights and in the language of genocide and international law. Um, so for these reasons, um, this has been a really important war for this access. But also, secondly, Hamas itself has been quite adept at utilizing media very, very uh, effectively uh, in communicating what it what it is both facing and what it is up against in the region, as well as obviously the um, many uh, Palestinians, journalists and influencers within the Gaza Strip and across the region uh, who are tapping into uh, a global sort of moment of deeper and deeper understanding of the kinds of uh, geopolitical forces that that are at play both in the Middle East and beyond. So there's a confluence of things that are going on, but that confluence in this moment um, has been uh, to the benefit of the axis of resistance. And this is something that they've been working on for a very long time to be able to develop multilingual um, um, media that essentially is able to utilize social media as a strength to communicate broader ideologies about what is going on in the Middle East and move it out of the narrative terrain of the global war on terror, which is uh, the U.S. and Israel fighting uh, Islamic terrorism. And it's been able to reframe all of that into a language of hegemony and colonialism and settler, um, settler colonialism specifically in apartheid. 
Thank you so much, Nargis Bajogli, professor of Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins University and co-author of the new book, How Sanctions Work, Iran and the Impact of Economic Warfare. She's also the author of Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic. Her recent co-authored piece in Foreign Affairs has headlined How the War in Gaza Revived the Axis of Resistance. When we come back, we speak with Senator Bernie Sanders, former foreign policy advisor Matt Duss, and speak with a Palestinian-American doctor who just declined to meet with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The American Ruse by MC5. The group's founding member and guitarist Wayne Kramer passed away Friday at the age of 75. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Narmeen Sheikh. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East as Hamas is set to respond to a ceasefire proposal to pause fighting and release more hostages. This comes after the U.S. launched airstrikes in Syria, Iraq and Yemen Friday in retaliation for the killing of three U.S. soldiers by Iran-backed militants who attacked a base in Jordan. Meanwhile, President Biden is facing more pressure over his support for Israel's assault on Gaza. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders has announced plans to introduce an amendment to remove $10.1 billion in military aid for Israel. In a statement, Sanders denounced what he called, quote, Netanyahu's illegal, immoral war against the Palestinian people. Democratic Senators Elizabeth Warren and Brian Schatz have sent a letter to Secretary of State Blinken to pressure the Biden administration to push back against Netanyahu's rejection of a two-state solution. The lawmakers wrote, quote, Prime Minister Netanyahu's explicit departure from that position, both in his statements and in government policies aimed at undermining this internationally agreed-upon pathway, is dangerous to both U.S. and Israeli national security. For more, we're joined in Washington, D.C. by Matt Duss, executive vice president at the Center for International Policy. He's the former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. Matt, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you could begin you. by uh, giving your response to these uh, recent round of U.S. Uh, strikes in Iraq, Syria and Yemen uh, and, and what you think may come of this. Well, I think it's, it shows clearly that the Biden administration's strategy here um, is, is failing. Uh, their approach uh, since October 7 in the region has been twofold. One is to essentially back Israel's assault on Gaza unconditionally. And the second was to try and contain uh, the conflict to Gaza. Um, and that second part is, is clearly you know, steadily 
uh, been failing over the past several weeks and months, but especially now in the wake of the attack in Jordan, um, you know, with these attacks in Syria and Iraq and, of course, continuing in Yemen. Uh, so this conflict has steadily been spreading, um, as anyone should have expected it to, because this kind of violence simply cannot be controlled. And if you could say, Matt, um, many have suggested, yourself included, that there are people in D.C., in the D.C. establishment, who've been advocating for a war with Iran for decades. I mean, what are your concerns mm-hmm. about where they stand now and how much their voices may be amplified? And how many of right. those are Democrats? Right. As I've said, I mean, there are people in, 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 in Washington, in the, in the United States, in U.S. politics, for whom he, Iran has always been a target. I mean, we saw this um, immediately after the war in Iraq, as your previous guest said, there were people who were making clear that their goal was to move on to Iran next. Uh, so anytime there is any kind of attack or crisis in which Iran is involved, um, you see these voices trying to exploit the situation uh, to once again drive the U.S. into an open conflict with Iran, which I think uh, many understand would be an absolute catastrophe. Um, if, if people thought the Iraq war was bad, um, they can, you know, we can only imagine what a, what a war with Iran would look like. This is not just me talking. This, these are military experts uh, in the United States who have repeatedly warned that, that, that an open conflict between the United States and Iran um, would be absolutely disastrous. But I think there's a political component here. You always have to take that into account. And unfortunately, you do see voices in Washington who always see a political advantage in bashing the president, in, in, in kind of promoting this kind of hawkish um, approach to foreign policy that I have to say has failed repeatedly. Um, and yet um, they continue to make these calls for more war, more escalation um, with zero accountability. And if you could respond, Matt, to this uh uh, Bernie Sanders announcing plans to introduce an amendment uh, to remove uh, over $10 billion in funding in military aid to Israel. I, I, I support it wholeheartedly. I think, as is so often the case, Senator Sanders is speaking for um, many Americans and, frankly, I think a majority of Democratic voters. If you look at the polls um, of Democratic voters' opinions um, of the U.S. approach to the war, this is now an over four-month uh, conflict. This is, it, I, I think, clearly um, a massacre with close to 30,000 people killed, um, huge parts of Gaza just obliterated. Um, we've seen in the past weeks acknowledgments from Israeli officials that they understand they are not going to achieve the goal um, of eradicating Hamas. And frankly, no one ever really thought that they seriously could do that. Um, so the idea that the United States is simply going to continue uh, supporting uh, this conflict with zero conditions as we have been, I think is absolutely the wrong approach. And I think uh, Senator Sanders' uh, proposal here is the right one. And if you could speak, uh, Matt, about the role of uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, something you've spoken about uh, recently as well, uh, uh, a poll found in January that only 15 percent of Israelis want Netanyahu to remain in power after the war in Gaza ends, though many support his strategy yeah. of uh, uh, yeah. his Gaza strategy of effectively uh, crushing Hamas and also yeah. much of the, the Palestinian population there. So in a sense, I mean, Netanyahu is only likely to remain in power so long as this war continues. If you could talk about the That's impact right. of that. Yeah, that's right. And I think that is what is particularly dangerous here. 
um, and gets to the particularly pernicious role of Netanyahu himself. Let's remember before October 7th, uh, he was facing multiple uh, corruption indictments. Um, he was facing mass protests um, that had been going on for months against his government's attempts to undermine Israel's judiciary. And then on top of that, now you have a, a belief by a vast majority of Israeli citizens that he personally failed uh, to protect Israelis, um, that it was the, the, the atrocities that we all saw on October 7 were the result of his failures. So he knows that as soon as this war stops, so does his political career. Uh, and the only hope he has um, of, of continuing to stay in power is to prolong and escalate this war as long as possible. And that's extremely dangerous. And frankly, I think it's it been been a very bad decision by President Biden to tie himself so closely uh, to Netanyahu and to this strategy. And I think we need to detach from them and show much, much more distance um, from what Israel is doing. Well, indeed, uh, uh, Biden's reelection bid seems also uh, to be in question, given uh, his uh, Gaza policy. And you've said uh, that his administration does not seem to understand the depth of the problem arising from yeah. his Gaza policy. And I'll just read a bit from this Politico article by Jonathan Martin, where he says, uh, quote, that a hot war in Gaza this fall may mean 30,000 fewer votes apiece in Madison, Dearborn, and Ann Arbor, and therefore the presidency. Biden especially came under criticism uh, last month when he spoke a uh, hundred days uh, since the uh, October 7th attack and failed to mention at all uh, what's happened in Gaza, the devastation mm -hmm. in Gaza with yeah. tens of thousands killed, displaced uh, and displaced. Um, and, and all this as a recent YouGov poll found 50 percent of self-described Biden voters say what's happened in Gaza, Israel's attacks on Gaza, constitute a genocide. So could you explain what you think the possible implications of this are in November? And also, given the Democratic, young Democratic base, uh, why isn't someone even like Bernie Sanders calling for a ceasefire? Well, I think I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to ever overestimate the impact that foreign policy will have on a presidential election. Um, but I do think we are seeing that for many Democratic voters, for many progressives, particularly young progressives, uh, the issue of Israel-Palestine is not just a foreign policy issue. It's an issue of social and racial justice. Um, and I think this is something the Biden team simply does not understand or are only now starting to really understand. Um, again, this is going to be a very close election. Um, if it's going to come down to possibly a few hundred thousand votes in a few key states. Um, and if a lot of these voters who you were just referencing, um, I doubt they will vote for Trump. They may simply choose not to vote, um, but they will almost certainly not work to get out the vote. They will not do the volunteering. They will not do the phone banking. Uh, they will not do the knocking on doors. It's going to be necessary to maximize vote turnout um, for, for President Biden's reelection. And that should very much uh, concern them. And I think what's going on here, it's not simply a matter of, of a difference in policy. I think everyone understands the stakes, what a Trump, a Trump, re, a Trump election or a Trump re-election would mean for this country. But the anger uh, at Biden's support for this assault on Gaza is really just incandescent. Um, it is a matter of principle. 
uh, for many uh, Democrats, not just Arab and Palestinian Americans, but more broadly, um, some groups of Democratic voters who simply cannot bring themselves to pull the lever or check the box for a president who is supporting this. And this is not going to be fixed by dispatching a few administration officials to certain neighborhoods in Michigan or elsewhere. This is going to be fixed, if it can be fixed at all, by changing policy and ending support for this massacre. Matt Dust, thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, executive vice president at the Center for International Policy and former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Before U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken left for his fifth Middle East trip since October 7th, he held a roundtable meeting Thursday to discuss the situation in Gaza with a number of Palestinian Americans. But some of them refused to attend in protest against the Biden administration's ongoing support for Israel's assault on Gaza. We're joined now by one of those who refused. Dr. Tariq Haddad is a cardiologist and member of the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights who grew up in Gaza. He laid out his reasoning in a 12-page letter to Blinken. Included in Dr. Haddad's letter were pictures of his family members. One of Blinken's staff reportedly made sure to print the letter in color. Dr. Tariq Haddad joins us now from Falls Church, Virginia. Uh, Dr. Tariq Haddad, welcome to Democracy Now! Our condolences to you for uh, the many family members of yours who have been killed in Gaza. If you could begin by, by talking about what you know of what happened uh, in Gaza to your family members, and then explain this uh, invitation that you received for a meeting with Secretary of State Antony Blinken and why you declined to attend. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me and appreciate the condolences. Um, yeah, I, I think some context is necessary here to understand why I turned this invitation down. So um, I have hundreds of family members in Gaza, both sides of my family, both in the town of Khan Yunus and the, and the Gaza city. Um, I've had about 100 family members at this point who have been killed, um, including physicians, pharmacists, lawyers, engineers, dozens and dozens of children. Uh, multiple uh, small babies. Um, I, I can't tell all their stories, but I just want to tell a few um, just for the for the audience. Um, uh, October 25th, um, uh, 10 members of my family, all th three generations of one side of my family uh, were all killed. My cousin Jamad al-Farrah, his son, who is a physician, Dr. Tawfiq al-Farrah, his wife, who was pregnant, uh, two of their beautiful daughters, Reem and Hala, uh, Jamad's brother, Assam, his wife, Samad, their daughters, Rusul, Tukha, and Nadian, um, all multiple generations all killed in one Israeli missile strike. Uh, Tukha, uh, one of the uh, the younger uh, uh, um, women in the family, her wedding day was the day she was killed. Um, they were all from modest means. They actually built the three brothers built the, their home themselves. Ironically, the same home that the Israeli strikes uh, destroyed. Another day, a couple of days later. Uh, my cousins Hatim and Aziz and Farah from Khan Yunus, who lived literally 20 yards from where I grew up, 
um, were killed along with 14 other members of their family, uh, seven of their children. Aziz was actually a pharmacist, uh, and Hassan was just an incredible community figure who always had a smile on his face, always uh, was available to help anybody who needed it. Um, the day before he was killed, Hazim had just come, not gone up to my uncle and asked if we could house uh, five families who were made homeless by the Israeli missile strikes in our grandparents' house. Um, one child, um, one child out of that whole three generations survived. Hamza, uh, he had an amputation, was in the hospital. He woke up to find out his siblings, his parents, his uncles and his aunts, his grandparents all had died. Um, Excuse me. Uh, and then he died himself in the next day from the trauma injuries from the Israeli attacks uh, because there wasn't adequate medical care to keep him alive. A um, couple days after that, November 2nd, my cousins, uh, Hani, Huda, and Wafat Haddad, all siblings, uh, were killed in Gaza City, uh, along with my cousin Hani's Croatian wife and my aunt. Uh, Huda and Wafat were teachers. Hani was an interior decorator. Um, my cousin Hanny initially survived with, as a physician, I can tell you, it was a fairly minor leg injury, but then he bled to death the next day because he had no access to any functional medical facilities since they had all been bombed and destroyed by the Israeli attacks. Um, Hanny's brother, Wael, survived and then had to witness the horror of seeing his mother buried from the waist up um, in the rubble, uh, dead. And he saw his sister, Wafat, shredded into pieces. Uh, all this, uh, you know, they're messaging me and telling me. Uh, my other cousin, Na'il, who I grew up with and had played with as a kid, uh, literally had to bury all his family members in a makeshift grave because he couldn't even access a cemetery. Uh, and he's been going 24 hours at a time with no food or water. Um, even those in my family who actually fled what was thought to be dangerous areas to safe areas have been targeted. One of my cousins, Samar al-Farra, uh, died in a refugee camp in Rafah around the time she had completed her doctorate for her PhD. And we were about to congratulate her on that doctorate when she was killed. Um, there are family members who've died from a lack of medical care and inability to access medical care. Uh, uh, one of my cousins, Abdul Rahim al Farah, died uh, because he was unable to reach a functional hospital after he was injured. Uh, four of my uh, family members got killed in an Israeli bombing of their car while they were ironically trying to go to the Gaza European Hospital for shelter. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, uh, uh, somebody on Farah, one of my cousins, died with seven of his sons. And then most recently, just a few days ago, um, a baby in our family, Sabar al-Farah, who's 20 days old, died, froze to death, died from hypothermia um, in the refugee camp uh, that his family was in. And this is after this 20-year-old just froze to death after nine of his siblings and his father were murdered by the Israeli military strikes a few weeks before. Um, the ones, the people in my family who have not been killed, uh, arguably, are suffering a fate worse than death. Hundreds of my family are displaced. Not a single one of them uh, has uh, is able to stay in their home. Uh, the, all their homes are either damaged or destroyed. Um, one of my family members had to give birth on the rubble of her home that was destroyed, and not would did not even have clothes to put on her baby. Um, 
famine is common. Every one of my family members has mentioned it. Um, they have no access to clean water. They've had to recycle water uh, because there's no access to clean water, and they've had dysentery and and gastrointestinal illnesses, uh, famine. Uh, one of my cousins messages me all the time saying he's gone 24 hours without food. Uh, so to answer your question, um, knowing all this and knowing what I've gone through week after week, month after month, checking every morning to see who's alive, who's dead, who's suffered, who can we help? And as the dead rose to 100 in my family, to 15,000 children all across Gaza, to 30,000 civilians. As I saw the famine happen, I just kept looking for evidence that our government actually cares about the lives of my family. And I saw none. Um, I kept waiting for a ceasefire that Secretary Blinken had access, has the ability to do, and he refused to do it. I kept waiting for for a United Nations resolution uh, to call for a ceasefire, which the United States continued to veto. I kept waiting for for something, and all I saw was the opposite. I saw uh, I saw our U.S. strategic military, Middle Eastern military reserve being used to replenish the Israeli uh, ammunitions for this genocide. I saw uh, cruelly just a few days ago the withdrawal of funding for the United Nations that was supplying military assistance to these over 2 million people that are going through famine. Um, so getting back to your original question, I, I sort of, I wrote this letter to Secretary Blinken because I wanted him to see me and see Palestinians as human beings, not as some part of political game or some sort of, some sort of, uh, you know, blame game. I wanted him to see us for who we were as human beings. And I wanted him to put himself in my shoes and ask himself if he saw his family getting killed day after day, month after month, as a direct result of government's policies, government's policies. And he knew that somebody in that government could have done something to prevent those 100 people from dying, the suffering of the remaining hundreds of people. How could you sit in a room given three minutes to face that person and face them knowing that that person has been directly responsible for the death of your family and all the suffering that your family has seen and and do so simply as part of a political grandstanding? Um, and that's why I just ethically could not be there, because actions speak louder than words. Um, uh, and I just wanted him to see us as human beings to to empathize and not play politics and not play games. Dr. Tariq Haddad, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And again, our condolences for the horrific um, the horrors that your family has uh, lived through in Gaza. Dr. Tariq Haddad, cardiologist and member of the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights, who refused to attend a meeting in uh, uh, D.C. with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. When we come back, we talk about starvation in Gaza with Alex Deval. Back in a minute. Then that's God shall get. Then that's not your so the Bible said, and it still is news, oh, mama may have, papa may 
the God bless the child It's God is own Yes, the strong gets more While the weak ones fade Empty Annie Lennox performing Billie Holiday's God Bless the Child. On Sunday night, Annie Lennox called for a ceasefire at the end of her performance at the Grammys. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Narmeen Sheikh. Israel is being accused of using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza as Israeli forces continue to severely restrict the delivery of humanitarian aid, food and medical supplies to millions inside the besieged territory after four months of indiscriminate bombardment and mass displacement. UN human rights experts warn Gaza's 2.3 million population is facing severe levels of hunger, with the risk of famine increasing daily. For more, we're joined by Alex Deval, executive director of the World Peace Foundation at Tufts University and author of Mass Starvation, The History and Future of Famine. His piece for The Guardian is headlined, Unless Israel Changes Course, It Could Be Legally Culpable for Mass Starvation. Uh, Alex Deval, welcome to Democracy Now! Lay out the argument you have in your Guardian piece. So my argument is essentially that while it may be possible to bomb a hospital <coughs> by it is not possible to create a famine by accident. And that uh, for some months now, and particularly in mid-December, when the Famine Review Committee, which is, which is the, the sort of the highest level of humanitarian assessment in, in the world, an independent, impartial, professional, and extremely discreet body of, of, of experts, said that Gaza is heading towards famine. It is already in catastrophe. And these are very technical terms. Um, and unless there is an end to uh, active hostilities by Israeli, by the is Israeli authorities and, and army, and a full spectrum of relief operations, it is inevitable that sometime in the coming months, and they said in, 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 in beginning in, in likely in early February, under the technical definitions, Gaza would be in famine. So that is fair warning. And the actions undertaken by the government of Israel, and the war crime of starvation is defined thus, using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare by depriving them of objects indispensable to their survival, including willfully impeding relief supplies. So the main element of the, of the crime is destroying food, foodstuffs, hospitals, medical care, sanitation, shelter, etc. Unless that is all stopped, Gaza will be in famine. Uh, and Alex, if you could clarify, we just have a minute. You say that Palestinian children in Gaza will die in the thousands, even if the barriers to aid are lifted today. Explain. So a humanitarian crisis is like a speeding freight train. Even if the driver puts on the brakes as hard as he possibly can, it will take many miles for that train to come to a stop. So the levels of malnutrition that we are now seeing, the exposure to infectious disease through polluted water, through overcrowding and 
through lack of shelter will mean that this humanitarian crisis continues. So um, this is a, a, a not something that can be stopped overnight. And the and, and the fact that even after these warnings were issued, even after the International Court of Justice issued its 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 provisional measures instructing Israel that it had to undertake these key actions, um, that this has continued and the United States has not stopped it, makes them culpable, culpable for the crimes of starvation. Alex Duval, thank you so much for joining us. Executive Director, World Peace Foundation at Tufts University. We'll link to your article. Unless Israel changes course, it could be legally culpable for mass starvation. We'll continue our conversation with Alex and post it on our website. This is thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Narmeen Sheikh.